You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to the Women in Archaeology Podcast, Episode 13. Today's panel consists of Emily Long, Chelsea Slotten, and Kristen Bastis. Today the panel is discussing the destruction of archaeological resources being tried as a war crime. What are the implications of this? Is it effective? And how can we as archaeologists work to preserve archaeological resources around the world from being destroyed in the first place? This episode of the Women in Archaeology podcast is brought to you by Codify, a California-based B Corp that wants you to get involved and make archaeology more awesome. Visit ideas.codify.com and add your thoughts about improving public archaeology. Let us know if you're interested in volunteer or internship opportunities. Share ideas for community experiences or anything else that you can dream of. That's ideas.codify.com. Let's join the conversation. Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast. I'm Emily Long, and I have Chelsea Slaughton and Kristen Bastis with me. Today we are discussing the decision made by the International Criminal Court at The Hague to prosecute the destruction of archaeological sites as a war crime. It sets a major precedence, potentially allowing the prosecution um, of members of ISIS for the destruction of cultural sites in Syria and Iraq, as well as the prosecution of many other areas that have been systematically destroyed. Um, but let's start at the beginning. What is the International Criminal Court? Chelsea, if you could get us started. Yeah, sure. Um, so the, the International Criminal Court uh, takes place at The Hague, which is in the Netherlands, um, and it is primarily focused on prosecuting human rights issues. There's a long history of various um, governments or, or groups of governments trying to establish an, an international court, uh, going back to the Nuremberg trials post-World War II, but the ICC in its current iteration wasn't created until the, the 1990s, so it actually hasn't been around that long in the grand scheme of things, especially in the archaeological grand scheme of things. Um, and it was a, a response to the crimes against humanity in the Bosnian Herzegovinian war and the Rwandan conflicts. Um, and the, the basic premise was that the ICC felt that they needed to hold individuals accountable for uh, their actions. So despite it being created in the 1990s, it didn't actually begin to function as a, a court until about 2002. Um, there are a couple different ways that cases can come to the courts. They can come... Uh, if national states or or national courts or individual states are unable to prosecute the cases, or if the UN Security Council um, or another individual state refers a case to to the ICC, um, and the particular case that we're going to be talking about today um, is a prosecution of an individual um, for the destruction of an archaeological site in Timbuktu, and it is being, or was prosecuted as a human rights violation. Which is pretty big, because it's it's interesting that they would think, um, or that the, the ICC would go that extra step that not only um, is, uh, I mean, obviously genocide is a horrible, horrible thing, but that cultural genocide is also a major crime. Right, and this was like a really big first, um, you know, and, and they actually managed to get a, a positive um, conviction. So I don't know, Emily or, or Kirsten, do you want to jump in with a, a quick summary of that case? As Chelsea is saying, the case um, in the um, Mali city of Timbuktu, Tim, 
to is uh, pretty big first. Um, so what had happened um, in 2012, a group of militant rebels that were uh, linked with Al-Qaeda, um, and they decided to destroy a UNESCO World Heritage Site um, that consisted of nine mausoleums, um, the door of a mosque, a burned manuscripts, and this was a, I mean, a major deal because, as I said, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and um, it was considered a site with extreme spiritual and intellectual history, um, particularly in the 15th and 16th centuries. Um, and the area was a, a university as well. Um, and so this has a has had a rich cultural and social history, but it also remains incredibly important to the current society there. So it's just, it's had a beautiful long history. So it was really devastating um, when this group destroyed a number of the shrines, mausoleums, and so forth. Um, and it was led, and I apologize sincerely if I completely mispronounced this, but um, it was, the group was led by the person who ended up being prosecuted by the ICC, a gentleman named Ahmed Al-Fakhi Al-Mahdi. Um, and he was captured and was able to be prosecuted by the ICC, and they charged him um, for that destruction. Uh, I believe he originally um, had been uh, up for a 30-year uh, prison sentence, but because he um, cooperated and admitted guilt during the uh, proceedings, um, he ended up, I believe, picketing a, a nine-year prison sentence. Yeah. So um, it, it seemed to happen pretty quickly, but it, it's, it's very exciting that the ICC is going in this direction by saying you cannot destroy these places. Um, and that making such a major distinction between, well, not even necessarily a distinction, but almost bringing together um, and putting almost on par the destruction of these major cultural sites with crimes, other crimes against humanity. So, Emily, you did point out that this seems like it was pretty, um, like a pretty quick turnaround. And one of the other things that's really unique about this case is that um, the gentleman who was convicted actually pled guilty um, the crime that he was accused of. Um, and this is actually the first time in ICC history that a defendant accused of war crimes has entered a guilty plea. Um, so... It, I mean, it sets a really interesting legal precedent because now there's a legal precedent for the ICC um, trying individuals for war crimes um, based on the, the destruction of cultural property. But there isn't really a, a precedent for how that gets persecuted or how that gets argued. Um, so there, there are still some, some firsts to, to come, which I think is going to be <clears throat> really interesting. Um, and the other thing that's really, that I find fascinating at least, is that the ICC now has said that the destruction of cultural property um, is is also a war crime, which really ties human beings into our cultures and our history, um, you know, and makes that the kind of sense of identity we get from things that are part of our history and things that are, are part of our culture and that um, we relate to. It recognizes the importance of those for people. With all of that, uh, UNESCO put out uh, an interesting statement 
um, and I'm quoting it, deliberate attacks on culture have become weapons of war and a global strategy of cultural cleansing, seeking to destroy people as well as the monuments bearing their identities, institutions of knowledge, and free thought. And it appears that's how they're putting um, culture as a war, just the destruction of cultural heritage as a war crime, because it's destroying not only people, but it's destroying a shared identity, um, that culture, the knowledge that people share. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you also, um, Kirsten, you mentioned this before we started recording, but about how this has the the possibility to erase um, individuals or to, to whitewash um, history or cultures as well. Do you want to uh, elucidate on that a little bit? Um, like, when you were talking about that, I was talking about the construction of, like, the reconstruct Palmyra, for example. Um, it whitewashes over the fact that it was destroyed and destroyed it and why they destroyed it. Uh, so you end up erasing pieces of history that are painful, but that need to be remembered so they're not Sure. That- definitely true and i mean there are certainly hundreds to potentially i mean thousands of examples of extremism um attacking cultural heritage and finding ways to destroy um cultures and just wipe everything out and i do think that that ties all back to this case um and it's there's a long history going uh before this case being decided of many different areas being uh, severely impacted. Um, as you said earlier, Chelsea, with the, uh, the establishment of the ICC during the Bosnian-Herzegovinian um, conflicts and so on and so forth, I mean, we also have the destruction of the uh, Buddhas in Afghanistan, um, which I believe, oh, when did that happen? How many years ago was it? In 2001. Um, and that kind of also helped get the ball rolling in terms of trying to see if there's a way to prosecute individuals or at least bring further awareness that extremism, the link of extremism and the destruction of uh, cultural heritage. Um, and it appears there are many examples. And it's what do we do after these places have been destroyed or severely damaged? Um, and so, Kristen, it's an interesting case you bring up that what do we do we don't want to whitewash but at the same time we need to bring these areas to light but how is there a way to not necessarily reconstruct but bring to light the issues and by making some kind of replica or something of that sort because i'm sure there are just hundreds of examples of places that people could hypothetically replicate I think that Buddhas in Afghanistan do have holograms that, um, I don't know if they're always on, but there's the option to um, kind of replicate them with technology. And I think that might be a way to um, the destruction in place, but also allow people to kind of see what it used to look like uh, with computer technology that is becoming more and more powerful to aggregate photographs and uh, use aerial imagery to create flyovers uh, and fly-throughs of places. Uh, you know, we were you know, kind of lucky that this didn't happen 20 years ago. Uh, you know, 
the extent that that it's happened now. Because we did have about you know twenty years to capture a lot of detailed digital imagery uh, of a lot of these figures. Um, another thing that we're talking about destruction of, of culture, uh, you don't have to look very far because uh, in the United States, whole mound groups have been destroyed. You know, the city of St. Louis had the nickname Mount City, and they're pretty much almost all gone. Uh, so, you know, you have to, where is the line drawn about who gets prosecuted for cultural destruction, and how far back in time it goes, uh, and how do you prove who actually was responsible for doing it? Um, you know, the, the Nuremberg trials are the, the basis of the international courts, and it was very clear uh, who was in charge of the Holocaust. There are copious records, uh, and there are, was a military-style hierarchy uh, where people were giving orders, and so it's a very, very clear and very well-documented um, structure uh, to the um, process of the extermination. I think that with people who are trying to become part of these groups um, of extremists, small cells, you know, they can carry out this kind of destruction and not be able to really well-document the process. So I think you actually bring up a bunch of really interesting points there. Um, one of which is is how far back can we prosecute people for this? And um, I don't have the exact date on on when the um, the Higlas tried um, a, a Nazi member for crimes against humanity, but I know it was pretty recent. Um, and I don't think that there is a is a time limit on on war crimes. And if you're going to be prosecuting archaeological destruction as a war crime, um, I don't know that there's been an official ruling on that, but I also don't know that there would be a, a time limit on when you could persecute someone for that. It is difficult or more difficult when you have um, smaller groups of individuals who are participating in um, in these events, but, but both based on what you were saying and also the UNESCO quote, Emily, that you read earlier about cultural destruction um, becoming a, a very common... Um, weapon in in times of warfare um i think it's also important to remember that this is something that hasn't been going on for 20 years or 100 years or or a thousand years but um for for far far longer than that um you know i remember being in oh god sixth grade um and learning about like egyptian desecration of um like nubian sites that was more than more than 2000 years ago so we might be trying to do something different with it um or persecuting in it in a different way but people have been destroying other people's culture for um longer than i than i have an exact you know um the first uh, date of the first time it happened um i think a good question is that why uh what motivates um people, not even just extremists, just in general, what motivates people to destroy culture? Yeah, I mean, that's um, that's a really great question. I, I don't know that there's a, a good answer for it. Um, I Also, looking at the, the clock, we've got a break in about two minutes, so I don't know if we want to tackle that when we come back, because I think that that's probably going to take a little bit more than two minutes to unpack. Yes. Well, in that case, let's take a quick break. 
I'm here with Michael Ashley from Codify.com, and we're going to talk about the new photo boards that they're developing and why we need them. Michael, what's important about a photo board, and why does someone have to really think about what they use in the field or in the lab? You know, Chris, it's interesting when we look at field photos, the way we've been taking them hasn't changed much in the past hundred years. Some people may use the back of a clipboard or paper sheet to provide a clean background or go to the trouble of using those photo boards with all the letters, but we really need our photos to do a lot. We need a new kind of photo board that can help us achieve consistent color, provide scale and help us measure things, especially if we're not collecting artifacts and we have just one chance to get it right. Developing a photo board that can do all these things, especially designed for digital photography, well, this is a challenge. It needs to be indestructible, weatherproof, fade-proof, lightweight, portable, and affordable. So what is Codify developing? And as it says on the website, what makes it magic? All right, in our lab and field testing, we started with a 10 by 12 inch board, big enough for most artifacts we encounter in the field, but not so big it would be a pain to carry. The board is magic because it has special markers on it that will produce a measurable model in 3D just from taking a few photos, and the object will be magically color balanced by using the board as a background. There's space on the bottom so we can superimpose a digital caption and company logo, plus a space for either physical barcodes or virtual ones to dramatically improve field and lab accessioning of artifacts and samples. So we've already received a lot of suggestions for other boards, so we're releasing a 4x6 inch pocket board in both Imperial and Metric. And we're psyched about our directional arrow, which has both metric and standard scales on it, and will white balance your photos. It's really cool. So when can people expect to get one of these photo boards, and where can they get them? All right, well, we're excited to say that we have a limited run in production right now, shipping just in time for holiday gifts. We want to get these in your hands and look forward to your feedback. Chris, what kind of deal can APN listeners get? All right, well, Codify is offering a great Cyber Monday deal for APN listeners. Just head over to www.codify.com forward slash APN for a Cyber Monday discount code that's valid only on that day and for other ongoing discount codes just for you. That's codifi.com forward slash APN. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. Welcome back. We're going to now try to tackle the, the question, why? What motivates extremists, people in general, to destroy cultural sites? What makes people want to destroy another person's cultural heritage? Um, Kristen, during the break, you were making um, some really great points uh, directed at that question. Yeah, so uh, in general, when uh, an invading force comes into an area and they want to exert control over the populace, culture is the way to live and change that culture. If you want to change that culture, change the way people live. So you tell them that now you make a law that says now everyone has to be this God and they have to do it this way and you have to um, follow the rules. And that um, that changes their whole way of life. And that's basically what culture is. Um, and it creates a new culture. Um, it's actually a kind of a phoenix proposition where one culture dies and another rises out of its ashes. Uh, and whether that's labeled good or bad, it's basically the writers of history. So the victors. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's interesting to find the, those transitions um, in the archaeological record. Uh, I, I personally, um, at my field school in Cyprus, we were excavating a temple, and occasionally you'd find uh, the heads of statuary um, with the eyes gouged out. And um, that was a way to take away power from that particular god or um, goddess um, and to try to redirect, you know, devotion in a completely different direction by taking away power from um, 
those that particular statuary um, that was representing a god or goddess. Uh, so it is interesting seeing that this has been an issue throughout history. Um, that it's definitely not a new concept. It's not a, a new thing. Even that we see it in the news daily, um, ISIS doing some new, um, something new uh, against um, Aleppo uh, or and, um, or ISIS in Iraq and Mosul and the destruction of culture there. So it's enlightening knowing it's been an issue throughout history, but it's also incredibly depressing. Not only did um, you know Chelsea had mentioned the ancient Egyptians kind of erasing the Nubian sites, but they also chiseled off their previous leaders' names. Like Hatshepsut was virtually unknown, uh, um, you know, uh, because almost all of her name, the places where her name was, was chiseled out by the person who followed her. It's a lot cheaper to chisel out somebody's name and replace it with your own than to have to build a whole new 20-foot statue. <laughs> sort of a very practical perspective. But yeah, it's a, it's a really good point that... Um, this kind of cultural and historical warfare isn't always just started from from the outside, um, but sometimes it can be done in, internally as well. Um, Kristen, as you said earlier, I mean, it's not a completely unknown thing to have happened in the United States, um, but the destruction of Native American burials, of Native American uh, homes and uh, traditional uh, origin places, um, and so forth. And just looking up uh, examples throughout the world, there really isn't one country that hasn't been touched by this issue. Um, so in a way, it's, it, it is surprising that it's taken this long um, for the UN, the ICC, um, so on, to make this type of determination um, that destroying cultural heritage is wrong. <laughs> Since it was what people did, to solidify their territory or their power, that uh, it's just what happened. It was kind of expected, and um, you know, people may have, at the immediate transition, um, you know, we're dealing with the after effects of the physical violence, but also at various times struggling, you know, the, the fallout from that, about how their lives changed, and, you know, if they were the ones that fell from power, you know, they're used to have a higher standard of living, now they're straight by the islands uh, of uh, England had many influences and their whole culture today is built on multiple successions of uh, population replacement by invaders. For sure, and, and going back um, in time, I think that you also have um, the issue of um, belief in the absolute power of your your gods to to protect you or forsake you, and that if an invading army can go in and can desecrate your um, your monuments, um, topple your statues, you know, are your gods angry with you? Are the are the gods of your enemies stronger? Um, I mean, Emperor Constantine Constantine, who converted to to Christianity, converted to Christianity after he prayed to a new god before a battle, and then he won the battle. So clearly his god was, was stronger than than the enemy's god, or at least that's the story that was always told in, in the classics classes that I that I took. So it is a an incredibly successful means of subjugation. Um, not that we necessarily need those, but that that certainly exists. And and I mean then coming back to today, we've also got so many issues in in Syria 
with the the war that's going on there. Um, and I mean, you've got air force strikes, and you have just some really um, terrible, terrible destruction going on. But you also have some hmm. Oh, just with the war itself, you're right. It's horrendous. Yeah, um, and then I mean, you also have the the kind of black market uh, antiquities smuggling, um, particularly from from objects that come from areas which are controlled by the uh, the Islamic State. You know, going and and funding the things that they are trying to do by by selling cultural artifacts. Um, you know, which does involve stealing them or breaking up statues or chiseling frescoes off a wall or I mean, whatever whatever it is they're doing that is destroying and removing the the cultural heritage and the the history from from Syria. You know, and it's it's really heartbreaking to think about. You know. I was going to say, the, um, I can't remember which month, but it's been in the last few months. The National Geographic did a wonderful article um, about the looting situation in Syria. And they showed this amazing satellite image of an archaeological site, kind of a before and after. And, you know, the first, you have your basic ruin. And then a few years later, with the, or I think they were saying in a few months, the, the entire site uh, was completely pockmarked with looters' pits because of the funding of looting to continue to support the Islamic State, but also with the war, and people are desperate. They need money, they need food, water, they need firewood, they need everything you possibly imagine in a, a war-torn area. Um, and so that is also funding. Um, and so just that image, as soon as you said that the looting has just that came to mind, just this incredibly pockmarked, scarred archaeological site. Yeah, and I mean those those scars are are really readily readily um, visible, and it it makes me think about um there's a there's a great book called uh, Root Shock that's on um, spatial theory, and a lot of it has to do with the issues that that urban renewal are are causing for population health as well as the use of space, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a, a French anthropologist whose name I believe is is Cantal or Cantal, and he did some work around an an archaeological site, um, trying to to protect it. And the archaeological site was bordered on its four sides by four very, very different groups. You had a, a very wealthy group, there was a, a commercial area, there was a warehouse area, and there was uh, I don't know if ghetto is the correct word, but uh, a housing area that was very transient. But he he went in and actually managed to talk to individuals in the in the four different sections about the the importance of this archaeological site for their their history and and their culture and their current lives. Um, and whereas before he'd been he'd gone in there, all four groups had been trying to to pick off pieces of the site to you know, make use of for their, for their own means, they've now started protecting it in a way that, I mean, no piece of legislation was ever going to, to succeed because you can't have eyes and ears everywhere, but because all of these people are now invested in this, in this archaeological site as, as their history and their culture, people keep an eye out for it, you know, and they've also started up some, some industry around it. So if tourists come, you know, you've got people selling replica, uh, replicas of, of our objects and things, but it is, a testament to, to how much archaeological sites can mean to people and how they can really tie everything together um, and that the loss of them is is really a, a physical loss. And, and when you look at pictures like what you're describing in, in Syria, 
you know, there are physical scars that match the the emotional scars of the people who live there who have lost their culture um, and their history. Made me think of um, so if if it's a, if it's going to be a war crime to destroy uh, an archaeological site, what about destroying the neighborhood where people are currently living? Uh, does that does that not rise to the same level? Oh, definitely. I'm sure if they are able to find particular individuals who are bombing that particular area, I believe there'll be a separate crime. I mean, that's a crime against humanity. Flat. That's a war crime, um, harming innocents. So I don't think the case is trying to say that... The question isn't about the people who live there. It was about the buildings they live in. Oh, the buildings itself? Yeah. If an archaeological ruin is so important, what about the buildings that people are actually living in and they're actually living in? I mean, I think that sort of destruction, there's never been a, a question that that has a negative impact on people's lives, because if, you're, if your housing has been destroyed or... Even if your house might still be standing, the the water treatment plant that you get your water from, or the well, or uh, the you know electrical wiring has come down, so that even if you have four walls and a ceiling, you don't have electricity or, or plumbing or uh, potable water or any of those things. I think that that's a there's a much more direct and like a much longer acknowledged negative impact of of losing losing those things on people, and that this decision by the ICC to persecute an individual for cultural heritage is just a, a new recognition of uh, the psychological or cultural trauma that can happen from physical destruction that hasn't been so recognized before. I don't think it's necessarily trying to place a greater importance on the archaeological sites over someone's home. It's just, I think, another step in trying to at least bring greater awareness to the destruction, as Chelsea was saying. That being said, I, I can't say that I've particularly looked for, for cases where people are um, accused of, of destroying buildings or, you know, electrical facilities or, you know, water treatment plants or anything like that. So I, I cannot say with... <laughs> any certainty whatsoever <laughs> that that is, is being um, prosecuted, but I would imagine. Uh, if not by the ICC, I'm sure there, there are a number of international organizations that are tackling like harm of uh, civilians. I think that goes, like certain things like that, like targeting hospitals, goes against the, um, oh, I'm trying to think of it, the treaty. Um, oh, targeting hospitals is definitely a huge no-no. Right. Is it part of the Geneva Convention? So perhaps like targeting water sims and that type of thing may be part of a similar um, concern. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Um, I think. Not, but, I'm not um, sure. I think, I mean, that brings up, I mean, kind of a, a free, like sheds light on possible limitations um, of trying to find one individual to prosecute. How do you go about doing that? You have uh, these um, small groups going around um, bombing homes, buildings, water plants, archaeological sites, and so on. How do you get that one person or even a, a small group of people in a war-torn area if you can't even get into that country or it's, it's simply too dangerous or leaders of that country are supportive of what's happening? I think that just sheds quite a bit of light on the limitations of what the ICC, UN, UNESCO, what would be done. Because, yeah, if you if you can't find a person or a group or can't get in there, you can't prosecute them. Where do you go from there? When, and even if you do find an individual or a group, and um, the, the recent persecution for the, the crimes in Timbuktu 
you know, the the individual who was charged was the the leader of that group. Um, but I haven't heard anything about the other individuals who participated in this destruction being charged. You know, is is it just the leader who's being charged? Do they not have the, the names of those other individuals? Can those other individuals claim that they feared for their lives if they did not participate with this dominant ruling class? And, I mean, I'm an archaeologist and I, I love all things archaeological, but I, I certainly would not blame anyone for deciding that surviving and being able to, to care for, you know, their, their own family if they had it was, was somehow less important than, you know, preserving some archaeological site. You know, there are terrible, terrible conditions that people are living in, and you might, you might do things that you wouldn't normally just to survive. Um, and I think that you also have to have some compassion for that as well. Well, we are just about on our break, so we will come back to that topic as soon as our ad is done. The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. Preserve, protect, and just record these incredibly fragile sites that have been damaged, destroyed, and are under threat by extremism. Yeah, so I'd actually like to, to jump in on that early right now. There's some interesting stuff going on um, in, in Syria, in part, unfortunately, because their cultural heritage is under such threat. But you, you kind of have like modern day monuments men who are archaeologists and engineers and artists and museum professionals who are working to to save sites and to to protect the the cultural heritage um so there is actually a, a museum in Syria's Idlib province that's the Ma'ara museum that has an amazing collection of of Roman and Byzantine mosaics from the 3rd to the the 6th century AD and they have undertaken an 8 month project that began it's in uh, the summer of 2014. It's It's been completed now. And they assessed the damage from um, Syrian air force strikes in, in the area and tried to protect and, and preserve the, the remaining mosaics. So they had, they brought in a bunch of, of materials like digital cameras, uh, packing and creating equipment, rolls of Tyvek, which is a protective sheeting you often see used in, in construction um, and they use the the Tyvek to wrap somewhere around 1600 square feet of of mosaics from from damage and then they also um, sandbagged the all the walls on the inside of the the museums to try and further shield uh, both the building itself as well as the mosaics in the building from the the violence that it was occurring outside 
and seem to have done a, a pretty successful job. And, and what's crazy is as they're bringing in all of this equipment and undertaking this massive project, they also have to do it in secret so that the museum wouldn't be targeted. So the, the cover story that they ended up going with actually was they said that the, the Tyvek was being brought in for, for burial shrouds um, because obviously, unfortunately, there are a lot of people dying in that part of the world right now and have been for, for several years. It's a little victory. But, you know, it's important because it shows that it, it can be done. It can give, give hope to people um, that there might be something there when they're, when they're done. And sometimes all you need is a little, little hope. Something that remains. Yeah. And these pe- are people who are risking their lives to, to protect these archaeological sites and, and this material. It's because of that, that human connection that they have to, to those objects um, for many of them. This is the their hometown, and that's um, you know the museum that they they grew up going to, and maybe the museum that they worked at, and it is important enough to them for them to to risk their lives for it, which says something about the importance that cultural cultural heritage um, and the objects that are imbued with cultural heritage can have for people. I also know that unfortunately, not all of the the objects can be can be saved, can be protected, can be kept from being traded on the on the black market. Kristen, do you maybe want to talk a little bit about what's being done to try and mitigate some of that? So yeah, the uh, University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology and Cultural Heritage Center and the Smithsonian Institution cooperating with the Syrian Heritage Tax Task Force and the Geos Spatial Technologies and Human Rights Project of the American Association for the Advancement of Science undertook an assessment of Syria's world heritage sites using high-resolution satellite imagery. Syria has, maybe had, um, has, well, will be a little positive, has six world heritage sites, um, the ancient city of Aleppo, the ancient city of Basra, the ancient city of Damascus, the ancient site of Palmyra, the ancient cities of northern Syria, and um, the Krek de Chevalier, and the Kalat Salah el Din. Um, and they assessed these sites to determine the status, and then they observed that um, at the time, in 2014, five of the six had been damaged. Um, and now, actually, all six of them have um, been, been damaged. Uh, but uh, they continued with their project, and they used um, satellite photography and documented the destruction of churches, mosques, museums, and antiquities uh, throughout Syria. I mean, some of that is, is being done, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but some of that is being done so that after... All of this awfulness is over. There are records of, of what was there so that objects that have been looted and are going going on the black market and being sold are recoverable and that they can prove that this is where they came from and that we should um, be trying to get them back. So archaeologists in this partnership have been um, recording using uh, satellite and video imaging to monitor and record and replicate ancient sites. In addition to that amazing partnership, Michael Dante from Boston University has been leading a team that publishes a weekly report 
documenting attacks on sites in Syria and northern Iraq, known as the ASOR Heritage Cultural Initiatives, um, which is funded by the U.S. State Department, draws on images from Cold War spy photos to constantly updated high-resolution coverage provided by commercial satellite operator Digital Globe. They also, in addition to using aerial photography, they also use a network of over 50 on-the-ground informants, including local citizens, refugees, Syrian archaeologists, and NGO workers. So there are a lot of archaeologists and others helping archaeologists to document the condition, the ever-changing condition of these sites through um, digital photography. Amazing, considering, I mean, if you have on-the-ground performance and the type of danger they're in, just trying to make sure what's happening to these different archaeological sites, I mean, that takes a lot of bravery. Yeah, and I, I think, once again, speaks to the importance that, that these places and these cultural objects hold for a lot of people, you know, and, and I think it's also, in addition to knowing kind of what's what in the moment, this information can prove valuable for archaeologists down the road, both in terms of what what has been destroyed um, and, and what has gone missing and, and what is irreclaimable, but also for those objects that end up on the black market as a, as a record of their existence so that they can hopefully end up back home. And so, I mean, even though all of this insane destruction is happening, um, there, there is hope. I mean, despite the major destruction of Myra, um, of all of these archaeological sites in Syria, at least they're getting recorded. At least we have this amazing record. And you're right, Chelsea, at least with photographs and documentation and so on and so forth, maybe some of these artifacts can go home, be part of people's lives again, be back to museums, um, and so forth. And kind of kind of going back full circle to back to the, the Molly case in uh, Timbuktu, as a way to try to bring those archaeological sites, the, the shrines, um, part of the mosque, the mausoleums, back to the people because they were, that UNESCO World Heritage Site was so important to the local people. UNESCO, artisans, archaeologists, they came and helped the locals uh, refurbish and some of the shrines and mausoleums that had been completely destroyed. So in a way, kind of bringing that back to them, helping the locals have that piece of heritage back, showing that archaeologists, UNESCO can have a role in um, showing that cultural heritage can have resilience and recovery um, if we work together. Um, true, some places are going to be beyond repair, beyond reconstruction, and, and Chris, like you were saying, something should not be reconstructed. That's going to be a topic of discussion for an entire other episode, where whether or not we should even make replicas of these destroyed archaeological sites. The recording, the um, efforts by archaeologists, UNESCO, informants, and so on, I think gives hope. The other now, thing that it should um, remind us is that in areas that aren't war-torn, um, to continue to document our special places and our special documents, to get digital versions of them, um, to keep up with technology so that the, the scans and things like that don't become obsolete and unreadable. It reminds us to pay attention, even if it's not under direct threat at the moment. No, and that's, that's a really valuable point. Um, I mean, I also really 
love when you were talking about, you know, who is engaged with, with this kind of work. You've got the Smithsonian and you've got the University of, of Pennsylvania and you've got those individuals in um, Syria who are on the ground doing doing this work and you've got the State Dep- Department funding a lot of it. It's not it's not just that, you know, this one culture's um, cultural heritage is is under threat and it's not just that it's not just their problem, you know, and it's really lovely to see so many people from from all over the world caring and getting involved in in whatever way they can and recognizing that just because, you know, I, I don't live there doesn't mean it's it's not important for the grander scheme of, of humanity, you know, and that we need to, to look out for, for one another and, and our um, one another's cultural heritage and you know, we've got so much divisiveness going on in the world. It's really nice to see people from from all over the world coming together to recognize the importance of things, even things that you don't, um, or to, to recognize the importance of, of cultures, even if it's not a culture that you genetically belong to or, or not somewhere you grew up. I always like seeing people working together. <laughs> well, these places are so old that they are part of our culture. They, they are the world's cultural heritage. You know, a lot of Western European thought is rooted in these places. Judeo-Christian tradition rooted in the Middle East. This is the, the world's cultural heritage. This is an old long place here. Yeah, sometimes I think people forget that. Uh-huh. Me being a little bit cynical, but... <laughs> and so it matters, and it should matter to us all. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that is actually a wonderful way in the podcast, we both provided some wonderful insight into why these places matter, the culture, why it matters, and the great um, collaborative effort we made. Do either of you have any closing thoughts you would like to share? I mean, it's. I think it's great how much we've done. I think that there's still um, a lot, a lot more to do, and um, I guess I'm, I'm hopeful for for the future, which is always a good thing to be. Definitely, Kristen. Oh, good. <laughs> That too. <laughs> <laughs> Chelsea and Kristen, thank you so much for being part of this discussion. I think we shed some light on a pretty big issue in archaeology and world politics and so forth. I mean, there's a lot going on in this particular topic. For sure. And thank you, Emily. Yeah, thank you for putting all that stuff together. <laughs> You're very welcome. And listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you have enjoyed the show. Please be sure to subscribe and rate our show wherever you listen. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and probably whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Remember to like and share. If you have questions or comments, you can post them in the comments section for the show at the Women in Archaeology page on the Archaeology Podcasting Network site. Or email them to us at womeninarchaeologypodcast at gmail.com. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcasting Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. You can reach them at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Music for this show was Retro Future by Kevin McLeod, available at Incomptep and royalty-free music. Thanks for listening! This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. 
contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.